You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Mapleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you to know God more by simply listening to what He has to say in His Word. Well, today is part two of the crucifixion of Jesus, and yes, you heard me correctly, I did say the crucifixion of Jesus. We are looking at Jesus' death right now, not his birth, so I guess it might seem that we are doing things a little backwards during this Christmas season. However, as we do this, we are all the more thankful for Jesus' coming because we are reminded afresh of why he came. And why was that? Jesus came specifically to die. He was born to die. And we looked at a couple of passages last week where this is revealed in the birth narrative. Uh, I will mention another one this morning which is in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. You don't need to go there, but uh, there the angel Gabriel says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Jesus is at this point only in the womb. Joseph is concerned, to say the least. Where did this child come from? Yet the Holy Spirit comes with great comfort and at the same time giving Joseph a picture regarding his soon-to-be adopted son's future. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. Well, we, we know how this happens. We know what is required. It requires Jesus to die. But Jesus hasn't even been born yet. We're already thinking about his death. But that's what you see over and over again in the birth accounts. And uh, last week, uh, we began to look at that awful moment when Jesus would go to the cross to pay for sins. And what a series of events it was. Allow me to fill in the details for you in case you weren't here. Uh, first, of course, we saw how Jesus is mocked. Pilate hands Jesus over to a battalion of soldiers. Uh, they take him to the praetorium. And not long after, they are then playing a game with Jesus. They put a crown of thorns on his head. Remember, the thorns were one to two inches in length just digging into his skull. Then they put a fake robe on him. Then they put a stick in his hand and pretended it was a scepter. And then they say, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! When this is finally over, Jesus is then scourged. I won't give you the full-length account of what that entailed, but uh, suffice to say, it was a terribly violent act that was performed with a very special whip that essentially ripped the flesh off of somebody's body. Uh, the whip had multiple strands to it, and these strands were embedded with metal pieces and bone fragments. 
When this was over, of course, came the walk to Golgotha with Jesus attempting to carry an approximately 100-pound wooden beam about a half mile. And given his condition, he obviously couldn't bear it up, so the soldiers then select a man named Simon of Cyrene to assist him. And once at the crucifixion site, things only get worse as Jesus is nailed. Again, remember, through the wrists, not the hands, because the weight of his body would have just caused uh, the nails to just rip right through his hands. Um, So he's pierced through the the wrists. He is also uh, nailed by the feet. And uh, it was just It was just awful. In the midst of all this, of course, Jesus continues to get mocked by everyone, and I do mean everyone. The mockery uh, was not limited to Herod or Pilate uh, or the soldiers, but it extends even to the religious leaders, the crowd, even the robbers getting crucified next to him. So it was a very heartbreaking scene that we looked at last week, and uh, I don't know about you, but my heart was just heavy. You know, you just, I I even heard someone say, you know, I just don't know that I reflect enough on the death of Christ. And I would say that is by and large true of most of us, um, that we just don't stop to reflect on the death of Christ often enough. Uh, Paul, of course, said that he decided to know nothing uh, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Clearly, it's was something that occupied his thoughts, his meditations, the stirrings of his own heart. And uh, I think it's good for us to meditate on these things because we are reminded all the more uh, about the comforts and privileges and benefits that Jesus willingly laid aside for us, for us. We are reminded that though he was rich, he became poor. Though he was the truth, He endured lies. Though he was omnipotent, he was made weak. Though he was a king, he was judged by his very servants. Though he gave life to all, he embraced death. So that was last week, uh, but we didn't quite get to the end of the matter because Jesus was still alive on the cross when we ended our study. And so this week, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to We're going to go back and revisit the cross again. We're going to see those final moments when Jesus takes his final breaths and when his body is then laid in the grave. And as we do this, one thing that will become evident is is how we start to see the sweetness of Jesus' victory. And I don't know about you, but I've been waiting for the sweetness of the victory of Christ, right? That's why last week was so somber, We look so much at the suffering of Jesus, but remember, the cross is not all tragedy. It's tragedy from man's perspective, but it is a a glorious triumph from God's perspective. And today we start to see that shift where we move from tragedy to triumph and from darkness to light. And so if you would, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, where today we're going to look at verses 45 through 61, Matthew 27, verses 45 through 61. Follow along with me as I read for us. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were With him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening... There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene, And the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So if you're like me, uh, you are sometimes helped by a timeline of things. And uh, so allow me to give one to you. Uh, We read in verse 45 that there was darkness over the land from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. The sixth hour is noon. The ninth hour is three. And for perspective... Jesus was hung on the cross at 9 a.m. And so when we come into verse 45, we need to understand Jesus has already been suffering at the cross for three hours. And uh, let me just take you through some of what happens during the first three hours. Um, We know that about 10 a.m., Jesus prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Uh, This would be the time the soldiers divide up Jesus' clothes. Uh, People hurl abuse at him, wagging their heads. Uh, He endures great mockery. At about 11 a.m., we have the the moment where uh, a criminal pleads with Jesus to remember him uh, when Jesus enters his kingdom. Uh, This is also the moment where Jesus says, Uh, to his mother, Mary, woman, behold your son. And there's that exchange with uh, the apostle John where uh, Jesus is going to say, John, take care of my mother uh, while I'm gone, which is really just amazing to think about. Even in his dying uh, moments, Jesus was conscientious of his mother. Uh, And then that brings us to noon where darkness covers the whole land for three hours Uh, At 1 p.m., Jesus is going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At 2 p.m. or so is when he will finally declare it is finished. And then about 3 p.m., 
is when an earthquake hits and the temple curtain is torn in two. And uh, so that's, that's a rough breakdown of things. And as we look at these final moments of Jesus' life, here's what I want us to notice as we walk through our text. I want us to, to look at five events in Jesus' death and burial that continue to display his power, his purposes, and his plans in the act of redemption. Five events in Jesus' death and burial that display his power, purposes, and plans in redemption. So what are these events? Well, first event I want us to notice is this. First, Jesus fully pays for sin. Jesus fully pays for sin. And just so you know, as we move through our first three points today, these are theologically significant realities. And uh, I don't know if you've ever visited with someone who says that there's not much doctrine within a narrative, but that couldn't be further from the truth. There is rich doctrine. There is important theological truths that we encounter as we look especially at today's passage. And the first one is this, that Jesus fully pays for sin. Now, last week, uh, again, we covered the physical sufferings of Jesus. And one of the things I mentioned is that it, it really is, it's just, it's so hard for us to comprehend all that Jesus endured at the cross. And, and while that is true, just in terms of thinking about his physical sufferings, that is especially true when you think about what Jesus suffered spiritually. And, uh, and so we kind of wonder, what, what was that like? Uh, what, what exactly did Jesus experience? Well, we get a, a little bit of a snapshot as we look at verse 46. If you would look there, Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, scholars have long wrestled over the meaning of this statement and for good reason, because when you read that verse, there is typically an idea that comes to your mind when you think about the idea of forsaken, and usually it's the idea of abandonment, right? And so we're going, well, in what sense could this actually happen where the Father has abandoned the Son? And there's a reason that we need to be careful here, because if you're not careful, you can quickly step into saying some pretty uh, heretical things about the very character and nature of God. Uh, for instance, uh, when we read Scripture, one thing that is clear is that our God is a triune God. Uh, that means that He eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God is one God, but He exists in three persons. He is three persons, but there is one God, right? Uh, and so, as we understand this statement, why have you forsaken me? We need to know what we're not saying. Uh, we are not saying that at any point the Son became unhitched from the Trinity, okay? We, we just can't go there. We can't say that. Well, what happens then that, that, that the Father forsakes the Son? How do we make sense of this? And, uh, and, and I hopefully will provide some help to you here, but I, I think the key is when you think about uh, something like 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Paul says, for our sake, God made him, meaning Jesus, 
to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So just picture Jesus. He's on the cross. We know why he's on the cross. He's not on the cross because of anything that he ever did wrong. He's on the cross because he has chosen to substitute himself in the place of sinners. You could could go to the cross Jesus says, no, I'll go to the cross for you. So that's what Jesus does. And think of the incredible, I guess, the incredible thing that's different here at the cross. Um, the, The thing that's different, something that has never occurred before in terms of Jesus' relationship with the Father. Of course, he's always been God's beloved son. We are reminded of this even at his baptism, right? The Holy Spirit descends, the Father speaks his affirming words, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased, right? So there's always been this close relationship between the Father and the Son, but at the cross, something, something amazing happens where for the first time ever, the Father has to treat his holy, blameless and perfect son as a sinner. The one who had honored God at every point in his life, the one who had never stumbled, is suddenly going to be treated as God's enemy, as the Father's enemy. And so I guess the best that we could say is that in Jesus' humanity, that is the sense in which the Father forsakes the Son, and as one of the hymns that we sing about says, that the Father turns his face away. What this would have been like for Jesus is really hard to imagine, and I think Wayne Grudem describes this moment much more eloquently than I can uh, say. Wayne Grudem says, far worse than desertion by even the closest of human friends was the fact that Jesus was deprived of the closeness to the Father that had been the deepest joy of his heart for all his earthly life. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He showed that he was finally cut off from the sweet fellowship with his heavenly Father that had been the unfailing source of his inward strength and the element of greatest joy and a life filled with sorrow. And as you think about that moment, of course, we can all think of uh, times in our lives uh, when we have missed someone, right? Uh, There have been times, whether because you have had to go somewhere or because someone has departed from you, where you have missed their company and their fellowship and you have longed for their affection and you have longed for their companionship and you have longed for their friendship and you miss them deeply because it's gone. Well, Jesus experienced this, but it was even worse, far worse than anything we've ever experienced because not only was the fellowship he once had with the Father interrupted, but it was interrupted by the unmitigated wrath of God that was unleashed on him for every sin that God's people had ever committed. And, uh, and just stop to think about what that would have been like. I mean, that was a lot of sin. And this could be illustrated very easily, even when you think about your own life, right? I mean, I love to ask people, so how many times do you think you sin in a day? And people go, hmm, 
I don't know, but it's, it's, it's quite, a, quite a bit, <laughs> you know. Well, you think you sin like, I don't know, a couple times? Uh, I don't know, probably more than that. Okay, well, I don't know, maybe like 20? Uh, probably more than that. Friends, the wages of sin is death. The penalty that's owed even for one sin is eternal damnation. Well, that's mystifying to think about all that Jesus experienced on the cross and paying for every sin because I know that just myself alone, there's plenty of sin to be paid for. If Jesus is saving billions of people, you're talking about punishment for trillions and trillions of sins. And he absorbs all of God's wrath on account of these sins. Uh, No wonder that he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus knew what he was doing. And I think it's important when you look at this, that you notice, especially verse 50, look there if you would. We read that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. Now these words are significant because when Jesus dies, we always need to remember this, that he doesn't die because somebody took his life from him. He died because by an act of his sovereign will and power, he dismissed his soul from his body. Now, why would I care to point this out? I point it out because I want you to appreciate that Jesus is at every point in the process of his crucifixion absolutely in control over his death. He is the one who will lay down his life and he will take it up again. And nobody forces his hand. Sin itself does not force his hand. The Father does not force his hand. He willingly pays our debt without grudge keeping or resistance and with fullness of joy. And this is good for us to be reminded of for many reasons, not the least of which though is to prevent us from thinking about the cross as some do as some form of cosmic child abuse. I don't know if you've encountered anybody who has uh, described the working of Christ like that, where they, they think that, that Jesus comes and, you know, he comes to save us from the angry Father, as though somehow uh, these two persons are completely different from each other. Well, yes, certainly Jesus comes to save us from the wrath of God, but he does so willingly. He does so with eagerness. He does so with joy. He endures the cross for the joy that was set before him. And uh, this is clear, again, even in the language, Jesus yielded up his spirit. So you can't picture the Father saying to Jesus, well, you have to go to the cross and you have to stay there till I'm done with you. No, that is a distorted picture of the gospel. Again, Jesus delighted to go to the cross because he knew what would be the outcome for all of us if he did not go there? And, uh, but it's important to understand not only that this is an expression of sorrow when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's something more going on because this is also a statement of confidence in the work of God. And how do we know this? We know this because Psalm 22 is divided into three parts. And that statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just keep in mind, that is the first verse in the entire psalm of Psalm 22. 
And so, yes, the psalm, it starts with lament, a lament that moves from verse 1 through verse 18, but then there's a pivot point of praise, of deliverance in verses 19 through 21, and then it turns to speak about a future vindication. Jesus, he only has so many breaths life. He is not going to get the whole psalm out, but the reason he mentions even the first verse is to get us to think about everything, everything that's mentioned in the psalm. Jesus knows what the future outcome will be He knew that vindication would come, and the vindication would come when the resurrection happened. And uh, it's just incredibly profound, again. So, event number two that I want us to notice this uh, here now is this. Secondly, Jesus secures access to God. Event number two, Jesus secures access to God. And what I want to focus on is that moment that we read about where it says the veil was split in two. And forgive me if you're insulted by this, but I want to just be really clear here. Maybe you're newer to Christianity. Uh, Maybe you've been in the church a lot. I don't know, but I think it's helpful for us to understand again and compare our God to other representations of God out there. So as you think about what the world teaches about God, there are many different views regarding who he is. For instance, if someone is an atheist, they believe there's no God. If someone's a pantheist, they say essentially everything is God. If someone's a polytheist, then they believe that there's many gods. But Christians believe differently than all these things because we believe that there is one God. And not only is there one God... But this God truly is a personal God because he decided to enter into a relationship with his creatures. And this is so evident even from the first pages of Scripture, right? God creates Adam and Eve, and immediately he begins communicating with them. Does he need Adam and Eve? No, but he longs to be in a relationship with Adam and Eve. He gives Adam and Eve his word. They are in the garden together, and things are going quite lovely until something horrific happens. And what was that? Sin then enters the picture. And sin is a problem not only for Adam and Eve, but sin's a problem for us because the impact of sin is still the same for us as it was for them, where sin ends up separating us from God. Well, in the Old Testament, God wanted to communicate the significance of this reality and the barrier that sin creates between us and God. So here's what God does. He gives us an object lesson to teach us about it, not the least of which happens to be the picture of the temple and all that happened there. And because of this, I just want you to imagine the temple for a moment. Now, I'm guessing uh, you haven't visited the temple lately. Is that fair to say? Because it's not there. And perhaps you haven't even seen a picture of what the temple was like. So let me just try and help you think of it. So just think about a big rectangle, okay? And and at the center of the rectangle is the actual temple area where people would go to meet with God, right? But you had different sections of the temple area. And along the outside of the rectangle, okay, you had a place where everybody was welcome to be. And so people would go there, and they would, they would mingle, and essentially that outside area it represented the nations. All could come and be near God, right? But the closer you move to the center of the rectangle, to the heart of the temple, 
Uh, suddenly things become more restricted because the closer you get to the middle, the closer you drew to what was considered to be the very dwelling place of God. And the heart of that dwelling place happened to be something called the Holy of Holies. But uh, here's the deal with the Holy of Holies. Helpful to understand that since it was considered to be the place that God was most present and physically manifested, it was protected, separated by a large ornate curtain or veil, which represented the barrier that sin creates between humans and God. And here's what's fascinating about the Holy of Holies. The fact is, it was a place that could only be entered into once a year on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement and by one person. Who was that? By a priest. And there were precautions that needed to be take, taken even for the priest. The priest who entered, he would have had to wash himself by taking a bath. He would have had to put on different clothes. And then when he entered, he'd have to offer a sacrifice for himself before he offered a sacrifice uh, for God's people. And uh, this was so dangerous or considered to be so dangerous. One thing that's interesting is that according to Jewish tradition, is that before someone went into the Holy of Holies, they would have a rope tied around their ankle. As if somebody went in there and they passed out or they fainted or something happened, you don't want to be going into the Holy of Holies. We're just going to drag that guy out. And uh, think about what this meant then, in light of what I just told you, for the veil to be torn. It meant that the temple and all that was done in the temple was coming to an end. And why? Jesus is the new temple. He is a new priest. He is a new sacrifice. And he grants new access to glory and fellowship with God. And this is why Jesus referred to his body as the temple, right? Remember that moment when Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And that was actually a statement that people took out of context to use against him that was one of the accusations that were made against Jesus when he was standing before the religious leaders. They're looking for false witnesses. Finally, a couple of people come forward and say, ah, we heard him say he wants to destroy the temple. The Gospel of John tells us Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. But he could have used other language. But why didn't he? Because again, he is coming to replace the temple. He comes to tear down the veil. He comes to tear down that which barricaded and separated us from God. And so when Jesus says that his body was the temple, he was saying, when I die, the temple system dies. And when I rise, I am the temple. I am the sacrifice for sins. I am the priest and go between with God. I am the presence and the radiance of his glory. The temple is finished. And indeed, indeed it was. It was finished. And Hebrews says it so eloquently, uh, allow me to read from Hebrews chapter 10, where we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water." But uh, here's something else I want us to think about. Not only does Jesus end up replacing the temple, but he does something else by ripping the veil. And you know what it is? He makes us priests. He makes us priests. Because we then 
And ultimately, this eventually happens, right? Where the gift of the Holy Spirit is given, and now the reality that we get to enjoy today is that God himself dwells within us. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives through faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, this is an amazing reality to think about. Protestants especially celebrate this concept in what we often refer to as the priesthood of all believers, okay? I mean, and you think of how lovely this is. Like, you don't, you don't have to buy a plane ticket this week and fly over to Jerusalem. You don't have to try and gain access to the temple, and if you went there, you'd be disappointed because it's not there anyways, right? But, but, but you don't need to do that because you have immediate access. When you wake up in the morning, you can actually go to God directly. You can commune with him in a, in a unique and special way that oftentimes we just take for granted. And uh, friend, I have to ask you, are you taking advantage of that? Are you delighting yourself in the Lord? Are you offering your sacrifice, not the sacrifice of animals, but are you offering up your body as a living sacrifice? That is now the sacrifice we offer to God, our bodies as a living sacrifice. So we see here event number two, Jesus secures access to God, but there's more. As we notice in event number three, third, Jesus breaks sin's curse. Jesus breaks sin's curse. Now, uh, there are obviously a great number of cosmic phenomena that take place here. And uh, we just have to imagine just how frightening it would have been and awesome to have witnessed these things. Uh, we notice the, the veil is torn in two, but verse 51 also says this. says that the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now keep in mind that there's actually a, some, some things going on here that happened just at the death of Christ. And then there's some things added in here uh, that happened at the resurrection of Jesus. And in terms of the saints that, that are raised, that had fallen asleep but come back to life, uh, we know that, that that event doesn't happen until after the resurrection. How do we know this? Because verse 53 says, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared uh, to many, right? So just separate some of that event. But nonetheless, we still have to marvel over this moment that here you have creation itself declaring in as loud of a way possible that Jesus is God, and certainly God approves of everything that he has done in going to the cross. Uh, supernatural events involving creation, they consistently demonstrate Jesus' power. Uh, they completely, they continue to uh, point us to the fact that he is a true prophet that has been sent by God. He is the new Moses. He is the new David. He is a better Adam. He is all of these things. And it's significant as you think about creation acting in this way because we are told, if you would, just take your Bibles, turn on over to Romans. Turn on over to Romans chapter 8. And look at verses 22 and 23. Listen to what Paul says here. For we know 
Actually, back up to verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Uh, you know, when we talk about the work of Christ, oftentimes we emphasize the personal dimension of this, that we receive as individuals, we receive salvation, we receive the forgiveness of sins, and all that is good and well. But friends, there's something even bigger than that going on through what Jesus does on the cross. Yes, he is redeeming a new humanity, but he is also going to be redeeming creation itself. And while there is this this future resurrection of our bodies one day that will come, creation also anticipates that day. Creation itself is also longing for the day in which sin is no more, in which death is no more, in which the curse is finally and fully done away with, and Jesus reigns on the throne over everything. And uh, we look forward to that day, don't we? We look forward to that day. I can't imagine there's going to be as extreme of weather as we see. A lot of people think that climate change is the biggest problem facing. Well, <laughs> climate change might be real, but it's symptomatic of something bigger happening. It's symptomatic of the fact that sin has so affected creation itself that we're going to see things going on that we don't expect. And I don't know, it's that time of the year where we're like a, we're like a symphony of coughs um, in here on a Sunday morning, Right? And, and this week, you were probably going, oh, I'm so sick of being sick, right? And if you've got a bigger family, you're going, at what point is anybody, you know, is everybody going to be healthy at some point? That would be great. Well, one day, that will all come, and we are given the assurance of that as we look um, at Jesus breaking sin's curse. So, third event, Jesus breaks sin's curse. Fourth event, Jesus departs his devoted and uh, you know, when I picked this passage, I didn't know how to make, the, we've got these amazing theological truths in the first three points, and then you come to this, and you go, well, what are we going to do with this? But it needs to be mentioned, because Matthew, all of a sudden, he shifts our attention here, and, uh, and it might not be this significant theological point, but it is heartwarming to notice what's going on at the cross. I want you to look at verse 55. We're told how there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, if you read all four Gospels, one thing you learn is how John is actually the only man mentioned to be present at the death of Christ in terms of the apostles. And uh, this is interesting because who gets the, the attention? It's the women uh, the women are remembered for their loyalty, for their devotion, for their faithfulness, for their dependability, and here they are. I mean, you can learn a lot about someone by looking at these tragic moments in your life, and you go, who's going to be there on your hardest days? The disciples are gone. Uh, Peter's gone, it would seem. Uh, Judas, we know what happened to him. Uh, John's there. It doesn't seem anybody else. But the women are there, and 
I think there's an important thing to point out here, especially as you think about what role that these women served in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Notice what it says in verse 55. It says these were women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Okay, small phrase, but I think it's important. They were ministering to him, not ministering with him, not ministering for him. They were ministering to him. These women, okay, I think they were probably the backbone of ministry because when Jesus was fatigued, when he was tired, when he was looking for respite, when he was just needing to be cared for, these women were there to care for him as the messenger. And I think what a great example that they set for us. Uh, I understand that uh, I get the privilege to be up here and teach the word of God. Uh, I get to be a mouthpiece for God. But the fact is, most people will not be opening a Bible on a Sunday morning and preaching to the masses. Ministry is a labor of love through those who are willing to be nothing for the sake of one person, Jesus Christ. And the backbone of ministry is always, and and Paul even speaks about this in Ephesians, the responsibility of pastors is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And you might not be the person who's proclaiming the word, but we all participate in a ministry of the word in our own unique ways. And these women, they didn't didn't care to have the spotlight, okay? They will not be known for being these bold missionaries and evangelists, but they will be remembered for the fact that they were there when Jesus was in his hardest moment of life, Um, So let that be an encouragement to you. So we see here Jesus departs his devoted, and I can only imagine how hard that was to to, to leave behind people who loved him, uh, people who he loved, but he knew this is what needed to be done for the salvation of souls. Point number five, event number five is this then. Fifth, Jesus receives a dignified burial. And here we see a, a touching scene. Again, we, we see people. Uh, we see a man by the name of Joseph Arimathea come to Pilate and ask for his body. And amazingly, Pilate allows this. And you go, well, what makes that so amazing? It, it kind of makes it amazing because, again, you think about what crucifixion was. It was putting someone to death for treason or rebellion against Rome. And the whole act was to make an example of someone. Don't mess with Rome. And so if somebody got crucified, they were going to stay on the cross, right? And so it seems that by Pilate allowing Jesus' body to be taken and put in a grave, it was, this was another way where Pilate was saying, I actually think the man is innocent. I don't think he's guilty of the crimes that the religious leaders are uh, accusing him of. Now, this does not mean he is uh, without guilt or without responsibility in the death of Christ. But it does speak, again, just to the blamelessness of Jesus' character. But uh, you think about things from Joseph's perspective. Now, one thing we know about this particular individual is that Joseph, of course, he's a wealthy man. He's a man of means. Um, Even more, we're not mentioned this, uh, we're not told this in, in Matthew, but he was also a prominent member of the Sanhedrin which might surprise you, because remember, what did the Sanhedrin do with Jesus? They condemned Jesus to death. They said he was guilty of heresy. Well, there were were supporters that Jesus had within the Sanhedrin. And in fact, that is likely why the trial took place before the Sanhedrin at night. 
to try and ensure that the supporters of Jesus didn't know about it and weren't involved in the process. And we are told that Joseph certainly didn't give his consent uh, to what was going on. Um, In any case, here's what's interesting to me, and that while this act was clearly the result of Joseph's love for Jesus, as we have continued to see time and again, under God's sovereign control, it also ends up doing something else. It fulfilled a very important prophecy that we even read about this morning, Isaiah 53 By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So it was a very undignified death that Jesus experienced, but it was actually a very dignified burial and one that was fitting for a man who was as rich and important as Jesus is. And you just look at that fulfillment and you add that to the list of approximately 20 others that uh, took place in the last hours of Jesus' life. I mentioned some of these already. Let me mention them again. Uh, We're told that in the final hours of Jesus' life, these are things that were fulfilled. Jesus was betrayed by a friend. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He was forsaken by disciples. He was accused by false witnesses. He was silent before his accusers. He was struck and spit upon. He was crucified with criminals. His hands and feet were pierced. He was mocked and insulted. He was given gall and vinegar. Soldiers gambled for his garments. None of his bones were broken, and his side was pierced. So many prophecies just in the final moments of Jesus' life, and ultimately, it brings us to this question this one supreme question that has to be asked every single time we look at what Jesus did. How will you respond? How will you respond? What will you do with Jesus? He has shown his willingness. I, for your sin. But friend, payment for sin is only applied for those that turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus. Jesus is willing to pay for your sin. Are you willing to believe in him as Savior and Lord and and surrender all to him? Friends, I hope you would, because here we are reminded of the incredible love that God would love to display to you, but he will not force his hand, and he stands at the ready to forgive your sin, no matter what you're going through, no matter where you've been, no matter what you may have done wrong, there is no sin that Jesus is unwilling to forgive. He paid for all sin, past, present, and future, for those who turn to him. So turn to him and surrender all. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Mapleton or even in the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.